0: I V M. In India, we ignore our coastlines when we think about international relations. But if you, like me, grew up by the sea, then you know that water has its own history. Take the Bay of Bengal, for example. Think about Burma bazaars in Tamil Nadu, Hindu shrines in Cambodia, Chinese communities in Kolkata, Arab traders in Sri Lanka, plantation workers in Southeast Asia... These are webs of relations, stories of commerce, of community and cosmopolitanism. Welcome to the first episode of States of Anarchy. I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan. Today's show is not about a single state. We're going to be talking about the Bay of Bengal as a region. And my guest for today is the best person to comment on it. Sunil Amrit is the chair of the Department of South Asian Studies at Harvard University. His new book, Unruly Waters, is about how Asia's history has been shaped by water. We're going to be talking about Sunil's first book, Crossing the Bay of Bengal, The Furies of Nature and the Fortunes of Migrants. The book won him a MacArthur Fellowship, which is also nicknamed the Genius Grant. And when I read it, I understood why. The book is almost lyrical, and that's not something I would generally describe academic research as. I was lucky enough to catch Sunil Amrit on the sidelines of the Times Lit Fest, and we recorded this conversation then. We'll be back after a short break.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I also kind of wanted to make a couple of other announcements, right? So first, as I think I would mentioned last week, I just want to kind of reiterate, we're going to be closing our SoundCloud channel at the end of this month. So if this is where you're hearing us, please maybe try and listen to us on something else. Maybe the IBM podcast app, maybe another app. We're on all kinds of different platforms. The other thing is a little happier, right? So for the first time ever in Asia, we have a podcasting award for shows made in Asia. And we're very happy to announce that a number of our shows have been nominated. Pesa Vesa, Tech Careers in the New, Vartala and One have all been nominated for these awards. Please go to the website asianpodcastawards.com and go vote for our shows. Come on, make us win, guys. And let me tell you what's going on this week. On The scene and the Unseen, Amit is joined by China expert Manoj Ramani. They talk about the China-India relationship and conflicts that need to be resolved. On Varta Lab, Akash and Naveen are joined by writer, director and producer Raj Kausha. Raj is an old friend of mine and he talks to these guys about Jim Jam, Biscuits, Kiss Me Dogs and Cricket. Speaking of cricket on What Player, Mikhail and Siddhar talk about the India-South Africa Test Series. They also discuss the Japanese Formula One and announce the What Player of the Week and Not a Player of the Week, also known as the Wow Now. Let's talk about what's happening in the pop culture side of things. On the Geekfruit Podcast, hosts Dinkar and Tejas are joined by their friends Kunal Rao from the East India Company. Join them as they discuss their favorite sitcoms of all time. On Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, Janice and Anirudh continue the saga of Indian shows that they love. Tune into the second part where they discuss the TV shows Family Man and Ye Meri Family. On Football Should Ball, hosts Gaurav, Karthik and Shiva talk about the biggest rivalry in English football and how it's become more of a walkover than a competition. On paperbacks, Satyajit and Racheta are joined by Natasha Malpani Oswald, the host of another IBM show, Boundless. She discusses her love for writing along with the creative process she practices every day. On Keeping It Queer, Naveen and Farad are joined by our producer Madhuri Adwani to understand asexuality and bust the myths surrounding this umbrella category. With that, let's get you on your show.
0: Hi, Sunil. Welcome to the show. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me.
2: Thank you for having me. It's just great.
0: No, I'm very excited about this podcast because, um, okay, I'll tell you how I ended up reading your book. I was actually asked to take a break in 2017 to have six weeks of bed rest because my, um, yeah, it was just a really bad uh, time for my neck. So at that point in time, I couldn't do anything, and I was just looking for books to read. And then I found your book. I think on a catalog. So I. Ordered it and what was weird was that I used to live in Bangalore but Mm. I was back in Chennai just for those times and I was reading the book right because my house is right next to the sea and it just felt very prophetic that I was reading this book about the Bay of Bengal and sitting across the Bay of Bengal. Um, So tell me how you started writing this particular book. You've done some work in migration before, right? Mm.
2: That's right. I had done some work on migration. um, And I don't think I didn't set out to write a history of the Bay of Bengal. I set out with a much more limited aim, and that was to write the history of Tamil labor migration to Malaya. Um, that project then, it took on a life of its own as I became interested in exploring all of the ramifications of that movement, um, moving beyond Malaya to think about Burma as well, and even Sri Lanka to some extent, and moving beyond just looking at labor migration to thinking about the movement of culture and uh, the port cities, which ended up being, playing quite a prominent role in that book. And eventually, I think it was a, a friend who suggested, aren't you writing a history of the Bay of Bengal? And I said, well, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs>
0: that's good. Um, okay, I'm just going to read a quote from the book, which you have obviously heard tons of times before. <laughs> but um, quote. Quote. Picture the Bay of Bengal as an expanse of tropical water, still and blue in the calm of January winter, or raging and turbid with silt at the peak of summer rains. Picture it in two dimensions on a map, overlaid with a web of shipping channels and telegraph cables and inscribed with lines of distance. Now imagine the sea as a mental map, as a family tree of cousins, uncles, sisters, sons, connected by letters and journeys and stories. Think of it as a sea of debt bound by advances and loans and obligations. Picture the Bay of Bengal, even where it's absent, deep in the Malaysian jungle, where the Hindu shrines sprout from landscape as if washed by the sea, left behind. There are many ways of envisaging the Bay of Bengal as a place with history. One as rich and complex as the history of any national territory, end quote. Um, what was running through your mind as you were writing this? I'm curious.
2: If I remember correctly,
0: <laughs> I think I wrote that
2: quite late in the process of mm. writing the book. In fact, I think I, I had, I'd more or less written the book and and realized that it needed a little bit more. Framing, so I went back to the beginning and sort of added a few more layers. Uh, the prologue, for example, I wrote at the very end. Um, I don't remember exactly whether that mm-hmm. quotation is from the prologue or from the first chapter, mm-hmm. but but it was one of those things where I went back over it, trying to sort of think of the big picture and the big story that I wanted to tell. And that particular passage, I think, was 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 one of my one of the places in the book where I tried to convey a sense. Of all of the layers of this history, the fact that this is about nature, this is about migration, but it's also about ideas and the imagination.
0: And how did you go about researching for the book? Because your footnotes seem to be very, very extensively researched and, you know, you've gone through journals and diaries and newspapers and official records. So how mm. did that process go?
2: That took a long time and I have to say the research for that book was was a particular pleasure. I mean, I think even compared to other projects that I've done before and since, uh, you know, there is a special place in my heart for the research process for Crossing the Bear Bengal, partly because I did a lot of oral histories. Mm. I spent a lot of time in Malaysia, for example, in Areas that either still are or until recently were plantations, talking to older people, collecting mm-hmm. their stories. Um, I did archival work um, in Tamil Nadu, at the National Archives in Delhi, but also um, in Myanmar, in Malaysia, and Singapore. Uh, So that led me to investigate all sorts of different parts of the archive. Um, And then, yes, print culture became an important part of the story. And there are wonderful collections of Tamil language newspapers published from Singapore, Penang, Kuala Lumpur. You find these at the British Library, you find these in the National Library of Singapore. So trying to really enter into the mental world of that time as much as possible really helped me, I think, to sort of convey the richness of the story.
0: And how did you deal with the barriers of language? Because this, these were in Chinese, in different dialects of Mandarin, I imagine. Um, Tamil, a bunch of different Indian languages.
2: So I read Tamil. So the Tamil language sources were accessible to me. I, I read enough Malay to be able to use primary sources. Um, and then the rest, uh, I'm very lucky that there are lots of translations and those translations are themselves an interesting part of the story to the extent that you have Tamil newspapers, for example, uh, syndicating pieces from the Chinese press in the twenties and thirties. You know, the British colonial government was of course itself for its own Self-interested reasons are obsessed with translating things. So you have, you know, official translations of Chinese newspaper articles, which I think one has to take with, with a grain of salt. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. there are ways of getting some sense of that richness. You know, I wish I read Burmese. Uh, that, that is an absence in those chapters on Burma is, you know, the, the local perspective on all of this. But there too, you know, first of all, you know, English was a lingua franca throughout the region and, you know, middle-class Asians were very often writing in English. So that too sort of
0: helped me to transcend some of my own limitations in terms of language. And so newspapers are sort of the turning point in the book. It's when you you have the modern nation state sort of taking precedence over what used to be uh, an interconnected web of relations. Um, why a framework? How do you see um, approaching the Bay of Bengal as a region just by itself?
2: So I think there is that, there is that narrative that an interconnected imperial world, and mm. I mean, I think this is the irony of that situation, is that the interconnectedness was enabled by a a brutal system of exploitation. I mean I think that is the irony and at the same time the closing down of those connections was very often at least initially in pursuit of an ideal of freedom, an ideal of self-determination mm. and and self-reliance. And so I think yes there is a sort of rise and fall narrative in that story that this is about an interconnected world that comes to be much more divided. Mm. But I'm also interested in exploring all the paradoxes of that, including the the, the losses and the gains that came with that.
0: All right. We'll be back after a short break. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc, etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsani Hariharan. When I think about the relations between South and Southeast Asia, um, generally people go back to thinking about the British colonies and not before that. So could you tell me a little more just in terms of the book where you've started with the history of the Bay of Bengal as a region? I mean,
2: the book took me much further back in time than... I, as a historian, was sort of trained to deal with, and you know, I'm very much a modern historian. All of my work has been on the 19th and 20th century, and that—that that is the core of crossing the Bay of Bengal. But I realized I couldn't tell the story without going much further back. Mm. Um, so there are parts of the first couple of chapters that really do go back, you know, before European colonialism, to think um, based on on what evidence we have, and of course, based on the reading of scholarship by archaeologists and by ancient historians of what those connections might have looked like a long time ago. And for me, one of the big questions, and maybe it is a question that remained to some extent open and unresolved in the book, is what is the relationship between that much earlier Mm. set of cultural and migratory connections between India and Southeast Asia and the modern connections which were under British colonialism? you know, Is there something of a sort of bedrock or foundation that had already been laid in terms of the connectedness of these places that actually allowed for that mm. period of mass migration and mobility in the 19th century? I, I think I'd continue to have an open mind about the answer to those questions. I think it's possible to argue that what the British did was just completely different, that this mm. is about modern capitalism, this is about... Um, plantation agriculture Mm. and exploitation. Uh, But then there are, I think, especially in the history of the port cities, I think you can actually see that certain communities provide a continuity. Mm. Um, Tamil Muslims, for example, Mm. who were never sent as plantation labor, Uh, their history is one of these threads of continuity. I mean, from the 13th to 14th century, they have established themselves in the ports of Southeast Asia, in, in what is now Kedah, mm. um, all the way across the Indonesian archipelago. And they continue right through the colonial period to move as, as traders and shopkeepers and, and money changers. Mm. And I think looking at that particular community, you can see that maybe there isn't such a fundamental difference in, mm. in the modern History, that there are at least certain communities for whom the Chettias, I think, uh, provide Mm. another example of that. Yeah. That that there are these links that predate mass migration Mm. and colonialism.
0: Mm. Uh, So these are also then stories of communities themselves. Um, And just like how we can dispute if there is something such as a warring community, these still continue to be labeled as. Um, communities that do well with commerce, that do well with trade. Uh, Something else that I was also thinking about is in India, particularly when it comes to foreign policy um, towards Southeast Asia, the first thing that politicians do is stress on, you know, like historical ties. uh, Whereas there is a sort of rejection of uh, that from Southeast Asia if... um, the way I perceive it, at least, because you would want to relinquish the Indianization of your identity to gain your own identity. Um, so, how do how do you think of it when it's such a cross, it's such a web of relations that you can't separate one from the other?
2: I think you've you've put it beautifully. I think searching for origins and authenticity in this part of the world is is a futile and also often politically dangerous exercise. I mean, Mm. I think the point to emphasize is really that it's so hard to identify an authentic Indian or Southeast Asian Mm. culture when so much of this was shaped in interaction. And I think the problem with that Indianization narrative is is really that it suggests that this history is best seen as one of the export of Indian culture. Mm. And I think that Southeast Asian scholars, uh, Southeast Asians would see it much more as the sort of local incorporation of a set of influences amongst which, of course, influences from from India, from South Asia were were important. Um, But I think that the tendency to go back to that greater India idea in a lot of contemporary discussions is not likely to resonate very well in Southeast Asia.
0: No, I completely agree with your point, um, because it just takes a particular narrative and tries to sort of manipulate it for political capital or whatever it might be. Um, something else that I was uh, thinking about is that there's, when you speak of history, there's also this narrative of, you know, the Choras were... Uh, a seafaring nation you know uh, it, they went out and they conquered parts of Southeast Asia um, and as a historian I want your opinion on uh, did the Torahs actually conquer Southeast Asia uh, if they did why did they withdraw suddenly how do you look at that episode
2: so I mean I think the first thing to say is we have to remember how limited our base of evidence is and there's a huge amount of uncertainty still even among specialists among archaeologists among those who are uh, expert in reading the inscriptions that we have as our main source base to understand that there's a lot of uncertainty about what drove those naval expeditions Mm -hmm. whether they can be considered conquest as Mm -hmm. such um i I mean i think the term most commonly used to describe them is naval expeditions Mm -hmm. i mean this was uh a forward movement, um, not necessarily a movement of colonization. I don't think one can call it that because it was short lived. I mean, I think the broader story of both that expansion and subsequent withdrawal has to do with the bigger picture of the fact that, you know, the Cholas had deep trading connections with China, mm. that the Chinese empire at that time expected tribute from a number of other regional powers, including the Srivijaya empire, which was the subject of the Chola raid. There's some suggestion that in fact, this might essentially have been about commercial competition between the Cholas and Srivijaya Mm. um, in connection with that coastal trade with, with China. So first of all, I would really acknowledge the huge gaps in our knowledge, which, which might never be filled, Mm. uh, which is why, um, There was a recent novel, I I wish I could remember what it was called, uh, that actually tries to imagine that period.
0: Empire? That's the one,
2: yeah. Yeah, Deviation, yes. Um, (laughs) And, you know, maybe we have to turn to fiction and to other media to really at least try to imagine Mm. uh, that, that moment, that era. Okay.
0: That's interesting because at the Pragati podcast, we actually hosted her and we spoke to her about a bunch of uh, things and the research that she was doing. Uh, what I liked particularly while reading your book and while reading about maritime history, the Bay of Bengal in general, is that there is a very cosmopolitan, globalized vibe to it. You can't help but talk about places like Kedah or Nagapatnam or just small cities now um, without talking about how they were teeming with life and different languages were spoken on the streets. Um, Is that just a sort of nostalgia for the past on our behalf?
2: I think you've put your finger on what for me is the biggest discomfort that I have And had when writing that book, which is, you know, I think that kind of nostalgia is a risk of any sort of maritime history. I think that's a strain that we find in almost all work on the Indian Ocean. Mm. And I think there is a strain of that in my book that I was not able to sort of eliminate. (laughs) And I think we need to be very careful with that. I think the historical evidence does show that these smaller ports really were teeming with life, mm. that they were extremely uh, diverse in terms of the languages that one heard in terms of the uh, origins of the people that, that were there. I, I do think there is a sense that places which are now small towns, it can be difficult to imagine them as gateways to this wider mm. world, but but they were that. I think where the nostalgia comes in is to sort of minimize what was deeply undesirable about that world, the fact that it was a, a, an imperial world, the fact that labor was exploited in a way that uh, is, is horrific when you're reading those primary sources of what it's like on the plantations of Malaya in the 1870s and 80s. And I think one needs to think about that diversity always, I think, in context of the political and economic forces that made it possible, mm. which I think we uh, certainly don't want to cultivate any nostalgia
0: for. Fair enough. Um, Something that I was also wondering was how um, easy or difficult was it to separate the Bay of Bengal as a region by itself? Because, Um, it's also deeply interconnected with the Arabian Sea at some point Um, and within the Indian Ocean as well. I I don't think you've touched on, you know, how the Indian Ocean also interacts with Africa because then um, you also have to move into what's happening from the Middle East. So how did that happen for you? That was
2: one set of of boundaries to draw. Of course, the other is the boundary to the east that the Bay of Bengal and the South China Sea are very deeply interconnected. And Mm -hmm. to some extent, you know, that's the Malay Peninsula marks something. Of a frontier, but it's a very, very fluid, the porous frontier. So in fact, one could tell this story, expanding either west or east in some sense, that the Bay of Bengal is both part of the wider Indian Ocean world, but it's also part of what I suppose now is thought of as the Indo-Pacific world. Mm. Um it, that concept didn't exist at the time, but you know, very mm. much that sort of continuity with the South China Sea. I think my view was very much that there's nothing inherent or coherent about the Bay of Bengal as a region. It is just a space of particularly intensive connections, all of which are mm. then sort of rooted in broader geographies, um, not just maritime ones, but of course in interior ones as well. I mean, I think that is one of the things that that struck me that you know, we need to think about the Bay of Bengal in connection with the river systems, mm. in connection with the interior of both India and and parts of Southeast Asia so I think that there are it's only a starting point and I think you can follow those connections uh, you know in whichever direction either your questions or your imagination Mm -hmm. take you
0: all right okay this is my last question but for someone who wants to know more about migration about uh, the Bay of Bengal um, what would you suggest as reading
2: I would start with fiction really Um, Mm and for me as a historian, I've learned an enormous amount, particularly from Amitav Ghosh's fiction. And in terms of the Bay of Bengal, I think uh, The Glass Palace is the novel that really stands oh. out for me because that—that that is a novel of the Bay of Bengal. Mm. And I think for anyone who wishes to sort of get a a sense, a, a t- an intangible sense, but a powerful one of what this region was, mm. you know, the work of Amitav Ghosh and, and, and others like that might... Provide a way in, provide a starting point. I mean, there's all sorts of specialist literature by historians on different aspects of Bay of Bengal and Indian Ocean history, but, but often, and even as a teacher in my classes, I often do start with pieces of fiction if I'm trying to think about the, mm-hmm. the Indian Ocean
0: world. All right. Thank you so much. Thank man. you, thank you for Sunil. Joining it's been you. great. If you've stuck with us till the end of the show, thank you. I agree with Sunil. Reading fiction is the best way into getting interested in anything. Also, see if you can catch his books. It will change your world. That brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter, where I'm at the rate Hamsini H, or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app, website, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'll be back next Tuesday.
1: Hello, everybody. We have a brand new daily podcast we're working on with Bloomberg Quint. All you need to know provides the top news on business, markets, and the economy so that you can stay ahead of the curve. Tune in every morning on BloombergQuint.com, the IBM podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Do you wish you were smarter... Well, so do we. But the next best thing? We could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified. A podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday. On the IVM Podcast
2: app or wherever you get your podcasts. See See ya!